Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 238 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering listeners' Christmas weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's nearly Christmas Day, and it is our custom each year to bring you a special Christmas-themed episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what Christmas questions are you going to be answering today? We're going to be looking at, was the Star of Bethlehem a UFO? Are the infancy narratives evidence against time travel? What's the deal with Krampus? What's the morality of Santa Claus? Does Santa increase or decrease the faith of children? If you live off planet, when should you celebrate Christmas? Was Jesus a clone of Mary? Did Jesus know where Joseph and Mary hid his presence? Should we adjust our calendar if we had proof Jesus was born in 6 BC? Would St. Nicholas follow the Julian or Gregorian calendar? Could baby Jesus have colic or be sick? Uh, What will they use for Christmas trees on Mars? And should the church make a bigger deal of the Annunciation than Christmas? Those are some interesting questions. So let's now listen to your answers. All right, Jimmy, you ready to go to questions? Yeah, sure. Let's start with Josh. Uh, Is it possible that the Star of Bethlehem was a UFO? Depends on what you mean by possible. Now, this, believe it or not, is something that has actually been proposed. Um, There have been uh, people uh, in the UFO movement who have who have claimed contact with um, with aliens uh, back in the 1950s and to some extent in the 1960s there was a movement of people known as contactees who claimed that they uh, had been visited by and were in communication with extraterrestrials uh, the most famous of them was a man named George Adamski but the contactee movement kind of faded the claims that they made didn't end up being easily borne out by the science we later discovered because the contactees would say things like they had uh been taken to other planets here in the solar system and they were native to planets like mars and venus and places like that and subsequent science revealed no there the, we don't see any big civilizations ah. on these other planets so So uh, the contactee movement kind of faded, although there are still some uh, individuals that persisted, like uh, over in Europe, there was a gentleman named Billy Meyer who claimed to be in contact with extraterrestrials. And some of these contactees would mix in elements of the Christian faith. um, With what the aliens were telling them. So Billy Meyer definitely does that. George Adamski did that. Some of the others would do that. They talk about how the space aliens are like fellow Christians. 
there are space brothers and they believe in Jesus and things like that. Sometimes they'd weave Jesus into their mythology in a tighter way. And you would have proposals. And even today, you still sometimes have proposals that the star of Bethlehem was a UFO or a flying saucer or what have you. Now, in terms of um, of is it possible that it was an extraterrestrial vehicle or drone or something like that. Um, I, 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 is it logically possible that God could have used such a means to guide the Magi to Jesus? Well, it doesn't involve a contradiction in the terms involved. It's not like a square circle or a four-sided triangle. So it's logically possible, but that doesn't mean it's possible given the evidence or that it's evidentially possible. Uh, the only evidence that really can be brought forth from the biblical text that could support this is the idea that some people perceive that the star moved in a way that led the Magi to Bethlehem and then stopped over the house where Jesus was. And this is a a common reading, and it's a possible reading, and you do have people who will say, well, the star couldn't have been a natural object because natural stars don't move in that way. You know, they don't move around in the sky during the course of a single night in such a way to lead people to a location and then stop over that location. That's actually the, so maybe the star was something else, like an angel, or a supernatural manifestation, or a UFO. And um, even if it wouldn't be a um, an alien spaceship, it would f technically fit the definition of an unidentified flying object. We don't know what else it is. But I don't buy any of that. I've done a detailed study of this. And if you carefully look at the text in Matthew that describes this, it does not indicate that the star of Bethlehem moved in an unusual way. All it really says is that when the wise men were on the road to Bethlehem, they, star the saw, they saw the star in front of them. So since Bethlehem is to the south of Jerusalem, the star was in the southern sky. That's all it means. The star was in the southern sky in front of them. And then when they got to the house where the baby was, the star happened to be above the house from the perspective they were looking at it at. So, you know, if you're if you're traveling south and you see the star in the southern sky and you encounter this house and you're looking south, you're going to see the star above it. So that's really all that the text requires. It doesn't require any special motion. And once you realize that, it becomes much more fathomable what the star was. Um, we know a good bit about how ancient astrology worked. And in particular, since these guys came from the east, you want to look at how Babylonian astrology worked. And based on the on various considerations, it looks like the star was Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter was the king planet. It was associated with kings, both in classical uh, myth, uh, classical Greco-Roman astrology and in Babylonian astrology. Uh, and when Jupiter came into conjunction with certain other astronomical features, it had special meanings that could signal the birth of a great king 
in Israel. And there's a fascinating book I was reading about Babylonian astrology that makes this very point. So I think the star of Bethlehem was Jupiter seen in particular alignments. We really don't have evidence that it was a UFO. One of the things I talk about on Mysterious World is every phenomenon needs to be taken at face value until you get evidence to the contrary. So if your wife serves you a meal and and you can you can infer, oh, she's just serving me a meal. She's not secretly trying to poison me. But if you discover you're in an episode of Columbo that you have evidence she's trying to murder you, well, then that could overcome the initial appearance that she's just serving you a meal. Um, the same thing applies in other areas. Uh, sometimes Christians are too quick to leap to demons as an interpretation of phenomena. They'll say, oh, here's this unusual phenomenon we don't understand. It must be demons. Well, does it present itself as demons? You know, sometimes you'll have Christians saying aliens must be demons. Well, but they don't present themselves as demons. They present themselves, at least according to the common narratives, as people who are traveling around in ships. And you would want to assume if you meet an alien that it's traveling around in a ship, it's a natural being until you get evidence of demons. The flip side is also true. Sometimes UFO people interpret unusual phenomena in terms of aliens when there's really no evidence of aliens. And that's what's happening here. Jesus did not say, oh, guess what? I'm from another planet and I want to tell you about the galactic space brotherhood that you can join. He said, I'm from heaven and this is supernatural, and I'm going to tell you how to be with God in the afterlife, not joining some federation in this life. So it, it, it is a mistake to take the biblical phenomena and say, oh, we should explain it by aliens when there's no actual evidence of aliens. The phenomena should be taken at face value until you have evidence otherwise. And the evidence we have is that this is a supernatural phenomenon uh, in terms of Jesus's overall ministry. And we shouldn't leap to aliens as the explanation for it. Josh, thank you so much for that question. Right in the exact spirit of weird Christmas questions. We appreciate it. And my Christmas wish for you, Josh, that you don't wake up in an episode of Columbo. Robert asks this, uh, Jimmy, in the absence of any reference in the infancy narratives to time travelers asking to hold baby Jesus, is that evidence against the eventual invention of time travel? I can't be the only one who wants to hold baby Jesus. I would say that um, it counts as weak evidence against the invention of time travel, but not particularly strong evidence. In fact, some people would even challenge whether it's evidence at, at all, because there's a famous saying in science, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So if you read the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke, there is an absence of evidence of time travelers in those narratives. But that doesn't mean that you have evidence of the absence of time travel at any period in human history. And so there are alternative explanations that could account for the seeming evidence, seeming absence of evidence in the infancy narratives. While it's true that lots of people would want to hold the baby Jesus, 
um, there are reasons why not many people would be able to. One of them is it time travel might be prohibitively difficult. So um, and it might happen. In fact, the way some proposed time machines work, and I'm not talking science fiction time machines, I'm talking actual physicist based proposals for how time machines could work. Um, you can't go farther back in time than the invention of the machine you're using. So you have to build the machine and then you can use it to travel back, but not before the invention of that machine. So if you have a machine that's invented, say, in the year 2400, you could travel back to the year 2400, but you could not travel back to the year 2 BC because that's before the invention of the machine. Oh. On the other hand, it could be that you can travel back before the invention of the machine, but uh, in in doing so, you have to use so much power that or there are other adverse conditions that uh, it's prohibitively too expensive to get back that far. I mean, maybe you could go back a year and it could at a reasonable cost, but just like you have to pay more to drive across the country than to drive across town, you might not have the resources you need to get back as far as 2000 years in our past. Also, even if you say, well, no, it's actually feasible given the resources future people will have to get back that far, it could be that there is a prohibition on going back to this event. And that prohibition could come from a number of sources. It could come from God. Um, in Arthur C. Clarke's novel, uh, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, humans are uh, exploring the Jupiter system, you know, the moons around Jupiter, and the aliens who left the monoliths give us permission to explore all of the worlds around Jupiter, but not the moon Europa because there's something special going on on Europa. There's a developing species there. And so the monolith aliens send us a message that says, all these worlds are yours, except Europa. Attempt no landings there. And if we invent time travel, God could send us a message and say, all these times are yours, but not the life of my son. Attempt no landings there, because he doesn't want that interfered with. Or it could be uh, a temporal prime directive. Uh, humans could say, you know, we don't really want our history being interfered with. And this is a key junction in the history of the world. So whatever travel we do in time, you're not allowed to go to, to critical points. And this is a critical point in world history. So don't go there. Then there is a final um option that I'll mention in terms of the absence of evidence of time travelers in the infancy narratives, they hid themselves. If you're in the future and you really want to hold the baby Jesus, maybe you learn first century Palestinian Jewish Aramaic and you travel back to, say, the year 10 B.C., and you infiltrate yourself into Judean society, and you buy some sheep, and you get a job as a shepherd in Bethlehem, and you wait for the night in 3 or 2 B.C. when the angels show up and say, this night a Savior is born unto thee, and you get to go over to Bethlehem with the other shepherds and hold the baby <laughs> Jesus. 
Uh, thank you. You thought that that was very systematic, even for your usual standards, Jimmy. That was a very systematic walk through that. Robert, thanks for that weird uh, Christmas question. Uh, Jimmy, before I go to the next Christmas question, have you seen this thing on the Internet where people like look at old silent movies and they try to see evidence of time travel in this? Like, oh, yeah. they'll be like they try to see, like, if the person is using a cell phone in the background or, or something like that. It's kind yep. of an entertaining I- little corner of the Internet. It has. And you can see interesting things. I was watching. I actually put this on Facebook a while back. I was watching an episode of Columbo from the 1970s starring Dick Van Dyke as a philosopher. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke as a photographer. And I'm going, what are those two iPad minis he's got on his desk? And it was oh, pointed yeah. out that actually they're photographic plates. They're not iPad oh. minis. <laughs> but it is funny. Like people puzzle them out together. What could this possibly be? And then it'll be some like that, like just like that. All right. Shane uh, asks this question and it had to be asked weird uh, Christmas questions uh, for Jimmy Aiken. So thank you, Shane, uh, for doing the necessary task. Jimmy, what is the deal with Krampus? So for Krampus has begun to be popular in American culture in the last few years. It was not when I was growing up. We had never heard of Krampus, but it is starting to appear in like cartoons and stuff like that. The base. So for people who are not familiar, Krampus is a mythological or figure associated with Christmas in Central European folklore. Uh, You'll often hear Krampus associated with German culture, but it's really broader than that. You also get Krampus stories in northern Italy and Hungary and Croatia and the Czech Republic. So it's really Central European folklore. Krampus is commonly held to look like a kind of half man, half goat. So it's got horns and cloven hooves, but it's also a biped. And it's a sinister figure that um, that punishes bad children at Christmas time. And so uh, the Krampus legend we can show goes back to about the 1600s, so the 17th century. And that was around the same time that the Santa Claus figure was developing. And so essentially uh, what Krampus is, is a is an is the anti Santa Claus or the anti Saint Nicholas, whereas Santa Claus comes to reward good children by bringing them presents. Krampus comes to punish bad children by scaring them and doing bad things to them. And so it it brings a different aspect to the naughty or nice question. So just like parents would encourage children to be good with the prospect of getting presents if they're good, Central European parents would also warn children about bad things that could happen to them if they're not good. And that was then personified in the form of Krampus. All right. All right. I've never seen the movie, by the way. I'm scared to. Um, uh, Stephen asks this. Uh, yeah, we got time for this. Stephen uh, asks this: Would it be morally wrong to invent a fictional character who delivers gifts on Christmas, then convince one's children that this physical, no, excuse me, fictional character exists? 
So this is going to depend on your theory of lying. If you think that lying is wrong in absolutely all cases, then it would be wrong to convince your children that a fictional character exists in the real world. Now, that wouldn't stop you from being able to say, hey, there's this physical gift giver on Christmas that is just pretend, but it's fun to pretend. So we're going to play pretend about this fictional gift giver. Um, But it would be wrong to convince them that the fictional gift giver is actually real. On the other hand, other people have different theories of lying. I have a friend who conjectured that it might not be wrong to lie to people who are not yet moral agents, like children below the age of reason. Because they aren't responsible for their moral decisions, and so you're not affecting them in that way. I didn't personally find that persuasive, but there that is one theory. Another theory would hold that it's acceptable to lie to someone in order to achieve some greater good like maybe fostering, I mean, saving Jewish lives is the classic example. You can lie to Nazis in order to save Jewish lives by saying there are no Jews in my attic. On the other hand, um, you could say, well, there's some greater good here, like the fun and wonder that the children are going to have by believing in this fictional gift giver. However, I personally am not a fan of the fictional gift giver hoax. So although I leave it up to individual people, parents to discern what the right thing to do is in their circumstance. I personally am not a fan of the fictional gift giver hoax that is common in our society. Although Uh, I'm not at all opposed to the let's pretend idea. Indeed. Well, I guess the the next um, question is so it follows. uh, It's it's, it kind of follows logically from that. And that comes from Deb. And she says, does encouraging belief in Santa make children doubt their faith when they learn the truth? Not necessarily. Um, The many, 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 many. People have believed in Santa when they were small, and that doesn't stop them from going on to be devout Christians as an adult. On the other hand, in a very tiny minority of cases, I could imagine that it could. Um, and, And what I think would be more common, though, is people who later on choose to reject their faith may use the Santa Claus hoax as a pretext and say, oh, well, it's it's Jesus is a hoax like Santa Claus, when really we have very good evidence for Jesus. Um, and But the, that won't stop them from using it as a pretext to justify their rejection of the faith. But it's really a decision they've made independently of Santa Claus. So I don't think there is a huge risk there. I think most the vast majority of people, as they're able to learn to distinguish fiction from reality they can they can contextualize oh yeah that was a game and my family played it and that doesn't mean that they that we don't have good evidence about Jesus and that he is real and these things really did happen with him so i can't exclude a loss of faith in this situation but i don't think it's particularly common okay all right fair enough um, that whole thing about lying and everything, I, I struggle with that because, and you probably have already reasoned this out, but like a surprise party, often you mm-hmm. you kind of, you're deceptive. I mean, it is deceptive, but you're not meaning to do any harm. Have you reasoned right. that one out? 
Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, my personal view, and I know we've got to go to a break. My personal view is that lying is a form of cognitive damage. And there can be situations where you use cognitive damage for a positive effect, like the pain of getting a shot or a momentary deception to throw a surprise party that the person will really enjoy. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That's interesting. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, our guest, and weird questions is something we do at Jimmy. So it's Christmas time. How about some weird Christmas questions? That's what we're doing, and we'll continue with. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Rachel T, Blake P, Casey O, Bob C, and Nathan H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Jimmy, Amanda asks this, if you live on one of Jupiter's moons... It's possible that he does, Amanda. I appreciate that you asking him that. If you live on Except one of Except Europa, <laughs> attempt no landing. <laughs> you can't go to Europa, exactly. Unless you want to deal with those uh, monolith people. If you live on one of Jupiter's moons, how do you know which Earth time zone to observe in order to know when to hold midnight mass on Christmas Eve? Thank you, Amanda. Excellent, weird Christmas question. So there are a number of possibilities that one might consider. Uh, one, and this applies not just to living on the moons of Jupiter, but like if you're in a spacecraft orbiting the Earth or a space station orbiting the oh, Earth, yeah. what, what time do you keep? Uh, one possibility would be the time of the point of origin. So if you launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida, you might be using Pacific time, which is the time in Florida. On the other hand, you might use the capital of the nation that you launched from. So if you launch from Siberia, you might use Moscow time. Another possibility, if you're having a religious observance and you're Catholic, you might say, well, we're going to have midnight mass Rome time. Mm -hmm. Or you might say, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we'll use, we'll have midnight mass at, uh, at midnight Bethlehem time. All of those would be possibilities. But they're not what likely would happen because we've already cracked this question when or we've already established a precedent, I should say. Um, when you go into Earth orbit and we've been doing that since, you know, the 19 um, since the 1950s, uh, you travel through all of Earth's time zones and you need to be in communication with different places on Earth that are in different time zones, depending on which radio receivers on Earth are turned toward you so you can pick them up because you the Earth blocks radio waves. And so you can't if you if if you launch from Florida 
and Florida's on the other side of the world, there's no way to talk directly to Florida. So you need to be in communication with telemetry systems and things that are in other parts of the world that are turned toward you enough that you can be in radio communication with them. And since you need to coordinate with all these different time zones, what people in low Earth orbit do is they use standard international time or what's known as Greenwich Mean Time. Um, and so it, they use universal time, which is based on Greenwich mean time. Greenwich is in uh, England and it's opposite the international dateline. And so Greenwich mean time is used as the universal standard time for Earth. And so that's what they do uh, when they're in low Earth orbit. And so, for example, the International Space Station keeps in, keeps universal coordinated time. And so if they were holding midnight mass on the International Space Station, they would do it at midnight Greenwich Mean Time. And I'm sure that uh, the same practice as we move farther out into the solar system will uh, will replicate. Now, there might be variations like if you're on Mars and you have basically a 24 hour day on Mars anyway, Mars is. Um, axial rotation is very close to Earth's, so it's pretty much a 24-hour day. You might vary from that. You might have Mars local time with different time zones, and you do midnight mass at midnight on Mars. But if you're not in that kind of environment, if you're in one that is uh, very different from Earth time, then you'd probably use universal time or Greenwich mean time from Earth, which would be the standard for communicating between different places in the solar system, just like it's the standard for communicating to different places from low Earth orbit. Amanda, thank you. I appreciate that question. Uh, I think the next question also comes... Uh, let me just... I'm uh, sorry, I just got a little lost there. Yeah, this also comes from Amanda. So we'll do another question from you, Amanda. Uh, thank you so much for them. Uh, she asks, since Jesus inherited no DNA from a human father, why is he not a clone of Mary? Well, uh, so we don't know the final answer to this, but there are a number of possibilities. One is that Jesus used, um, so we have, 23 chromosomes as human beings, and they come in two sets. So we inherit one set of 23 from our father and one set of 23 from our mother. Now, Jesus didn't have a human father, so it could be that God duplicated Mary's DNA. Uh, so he took one helix from Mary and then copied it and mirrored the two together and changed her X chromosome, one of her X chromosomes into a Y chromosome. So it could be that Jesus inherited all of his genetic matter from Mary, but God modified an X chromosome to a Y chromosome. It's also possible God could have created that second pair of 23 chromosomes out of nothing or modified it out of pre-existing matter. Um, those are things God could have done. We don't know because they didn't have the understanding of genetics that we do. And so the biblical authors never asked these questions and thus never got answers to them. Um, but if God created a second pair of 23 chromosomes, including an X chromosome, then that might have little or no resemblance to Mary. So those are two possible ways that Mary, uh, that Jesus could 
avoid being just a clone of Mary. If he was a full clone, he would have he would have had two X chromosomes. And since he was a man, we know he didn't, because in humans, if you're going to be a man, you need a Y chromosome. And consequently, he could not have been a full clone of Mary. Those are two ways that that God could have accomplished this. Now, you might say, well, what if God took all of the DNA for Mary and just changed that one chromosome so that it was a Y instead of an X? Would he otherwise be a clone of Mary? Would he otherwise be genetically identical to her? And the answer is not necessarily, because um, we have ourselves two each one of us has those two sets of 23 chromosomes. So let's talk about chromosome one. I might have a particular variation or what biologists call an allele on chromosome one. Let's say it's an A variation. But then on my second copy of chromosome one, I've got a different allele that's a B variation. So I have an AB pattern on chromosome one. But if you took uh, and uh, illicitly and made a new human being using just my chromosome ones, you could have AB like me or you could have AA or BB. Only the one that had AB like I do would be a clone of chromosome one for me. But AA and AB would not be identical to me, even though they have genetic matter coming from me. And so merely the fact that you have all of your genetic matter coming from a single parent doesn't mean that you're a clone of that parent. Wow. All right. Amanda, you got us two great questions. Thank you very much. So our next question comes from Michael, and he wants to know, would Jesus already know where Joseph and Mary hid his presence? This is an interesting question because, you know, Christmas is the birthday of Jesus. And parents commonly give their children birthday presents and they will, you know, to make them a surprise, they'll hide those birthday presents before birthdays and so not let the kids see them. And so if Mary and Joseph followed our present birthday customs, they could easily have done that with Jesus. They could have said, OK, it's time for your birthday and here are the presents we got for you. But they probably didn't because we don't have evidence that ordinary first century Jews celebrated birthdays the way we do. We do have indications that upper class Jews did, especially in royal circles. The Gospels, for example, record uh, the birthday at which one of the Herods uh, had his stepdaughter dance and Salome, and she pleased him so much that he was willing to give her the head of John the Baptist. And so we do have evidence that upper class Jews did this, but poor people like Jesus's family, and we do have evidence from the biblical text that they were poor. We really don't have evidence of them celebrating birthdays, but let's suppose they did. Would Jesus in that case know where Mary and Joseph hid his presence? Well, he would know in his divine intellect because in his divine intellect, he knows everything. Uh, he's omniscient, and therefore he would know what, what the presents were and where they were hidden from all eternity in his divine intellect. The question is, what would he know in his human intellect? Well, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 
Jesus, in his human intellect, knew everything that pertained to his mission on earth. And so if a present that he was receiving was essential to his mission, he would know about that. In his, he would at least know something about it in his human intellect by virtue of his mission-oriented consciousness. On the other hand, the catechism also acknowledges that there are things that Jesus, since he was living in a human state, would have to learn about the way that ordinary humans have to learn about them. And so he would have to experience things and ask about things and such as that. And so if a present was not related to his mission, then the catechism would seem to indicate that he would not know where it was because that or what it was, because that's something that one in the human condition must learn by experience and by asking about it and so forth. On the other hand, uh, John seems to indicate that Jesus could pierce the secrets of human hearts when he chose to. And hypothetically, if the, the young Jesus really wanted to know where his presents were, he might have been able to just read that out of Mary and Joseph's hearts and find out. Was a good skill to have. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Michael, for that question. Uh, Jack, uh, oh, another time traveling question as we do weird Christmas questions with Jimmy Aiken. Had I have to do? I just if I slow it down, I can say it. Jack asks if a time traveler would discover that the nativity really occurred in six BC or four BC. Would we adjust our calendar system to reflect that? I don't think so. The reason is that the current uh, epoch system, the era system that we use to so that this is the year 2020 is based on an initial calculation that Jesus was born in one B.C. Um, now, there is no year zero in this system because this was designed before the the numeral zero came into common use. So Jesus, according to the original calculations, was born in 1 BC. But uh, we already have established that it looks like he was born before that. A common theory you will hear is that he was born like between 6 and 4 BC. I don't think that's accurate. I think that itself is a miscalculation. I think the evidence actually shows he was born in 3 or 2 BC. But either way you go, we already have evidence that he was born before 1 BC. And yet we haven't changed the system. It has become so common and it's so ingrained in world consciousness now. It's even used by many people who aren't Christian at all. And it would be very hard to get all seven billion of us currently or however many there are to say, OK, we're going to adjust this year now for religious reasons that we don't all share. And so I think that would be a very difficult task. So even if we got proof via time travel of the specific year that Jesus was born, I think that we wouldn't adjust the system uh, because it's uh, certainly not in the short term because of how ingrained it is. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate that uh, time traveler question. We've done a lot of time traveling today with Jimmy Aiken because it's weird Christmas questions with Jimmy Aiken today on Catholic Answers Live. Next weird question comes from Anthony. As a Greek speaking bishop, would St. Nicholas follow the Julian or the Gregorian calendar for his celebration of Christmas? So um, St. Nicholas, when he was alive, 
would definitely have used the Julian calendar. Now, the for people who may not be familiar, uh, the Julian calendar is a modification of the Roman calendar that was uh, introduced by Julius Caesar. That's why it's called the Julian calendar. Prior to Julius Caesar's time, the Roman calendar had gotten out of sync with the seasons in a significant way. So you would have, you know, the, you know, the month, a month that should fall in spring really happening in summer or something like that. And so Caesar consulted the priests and said, let's develop a calendar that would fix this. And the way they did was by adding a leap day um, in February to keep the calendar. They also had have a massive one year adjustment known as the year of madness that had over 400 days in it. Um, but they they did the massive one time adjustment and then they had the modification that would largely keep it in sync. And that's why the Julian calendar became very common. And it was the standard form of the Roman calendar in the Roman Empire, including Asia, where St. Nicholas lived during St. Nicholas's lifetime. So there's no question he would have used the Julian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was not developed until the 1500s, because even though the leap day uh, helped keep the calendar in sync with the seasons, it wasn't fully precise. It was off by, I think, six minutes a year. And over the course of the centuries, that would add up and the calendar would start drifting from the seasons again. And by the 1500s, that had become obvious. And it was complicating things like the celebration of Easter, which is tied to the seasons because it's based on the spring equinox. And so consequently, Pope Gregory went to the priests, this time Christian priests, who were also astronomers, and and also uh, Nicholas Copernicus as well, and said, find us a fix so that we won't have this problem in the future. So they proposed, a, again, a one-time adjustment to bring everything back in line. I think it was like 13 days. And then they proposed an additional fix, which was, we'll have the leap day every four years unless... It, the year is divisible by 100, so it won't happen in, in 1700 and 1800, but we will have it if it's divisible by 400. So we will have the leap day in 1600 and 2000 and 2400. And that rule will keep the Gregorian calendar tied to the seasons on Earth, unless the Earth's rotation changes, um, f for thousands of years. So we use it today, and it gradually spread over the world, although in as the civil calendar, although in some Eastern Christian circles, they still use the Julian calendar for liturgical purposes. Uh, thank you so much for that question. Uh, Jimmy, uh, did you know um, St. Teresa of Avila was born on the day they changed the calendar? So there's always confusion around her birthday. Uh, really? Yeah. And how old she would be people, even though it's, you know, she has a birthday, it's it, it's on yeah. the exact day that they changed the calendar. So. So. So the people. way to the way to solve that is specify this is the terminology they would use during the transition period. Is it the old style date or the new style date? Yeah. Right. So Indeed. you just need to say she was born on this day, old style and this day, new style. Indeed. Uh, uh, Jack, thanks very much. Uh, oh, no, excuse me. That one was from Anthony. Thank you, Anthony, uh, for that. David asks this. Could the baby Jesus have developed colic? If Jesus was like us in all things but sin, does that mean he got sick? 
So it's possible for Jesus to preserve himself from physical illnesses uh, miraculously because he is the great healer. So if he had chosen, he could avoid getting colic as a baby. But it's not clear that this would happen because he chose to be born into a fallen human condition where he was physically vulnerable to attack. I mean, that's what happened on the on the cross. He was physically attacked and nailed to the cross and he died. And so if he can be attacked by macroscopic things like nails or whips, he could also, in principle, be attacked by microscopic things like viruses and bacteria. And so if you look at colic specifically, colic um, can be produced by a variety of different causes. It can involve a rate, an, an imbalance in the ratio of a baby's gut bacteria because we have this whole microbiome inside of us that's based on the on what we've eaten on what we've been ex- what what uh, my, what germs beneficial bacteria we've been exposed to and clearly in an underdeveloped world with uh with shaky nutrition at best he could have been exposed to a mix of gut bacteria that wouldn't have been pleasant so that could cause colic in the baby jesus also sometimes um, colic may be caused by allergies where your immune system uh, responds very vigorously to something. And if he's the great healer, his, he could have a vigorous immune system. On the other hand, uh, there are other possible physical issues that could cause colic. And I can't exclude in principle that uh, that this would not have happened. But I also can't show that it would have happened because we simply don't have that evidence. Uh, thanks, uh, David, for that question. I got that wrong. Teresa Avila died on either October 4th or October 15th. That's the one that you okay. always have to say. She, her death was either October 4th, depending on how you count the days. Um, uh, oh, Anne asks this. Uh, we better do this one quickly, Jimmy, because I, I, sure. I get a couple questions to get to. What will they use for Christmas trees on Mars? Initially, they will almost certainly use artificial trees um, because we won't have good uh, agriculture on Mars at first. And what agriculture we do have won't be given to growing trees, but food. Um, So initially, it will certainly be artificial trees, whether plastic or aluminum or whatever you may have. But over the course of time, presumably you could have tree farming on Mars that would result in natural Christmas trees. Uh, it's a day to look forward to. Uh, Anne, uh, thanks very much for that question. Uh, it's weird Christmas questions with Jimmy Aiken. Jason asks this, Jimmy, should the church be making a bigger deal about the Feast of the Annunciation rather than the Nativity in order to emphasize that Christ was incarnate on Earth nine months before he was technically born on Christmas? So the reason that humans celebrate birth rather than conception is because we uh, birth is a very objectively verifiable event. We know when someone gets born. It is a big dramatic thing when someone gets born. It's very obvious to everyone in the family. When someone is conceived is not. When someone is conceived is something that happens 
maybe without the parents even being aware that it's happening and certainly not for weeks afterwards are they likely to be aware that a conception has happened. So that's why we culturally emphasize birthdays rather than conception days. Now, in the future, that may change. It may change due to a couple of reasons. One is the uh, advent of abortion in our culture has directed more attention to conception. And yeah. I think that will cause Christians to, th and has caused Christians to think more about Jesus's conception rather than simply his birth. On the other hand, as we go forward technologically, it's possible to con to detect conception much earlier. It's even possible that in the future, w w there could be real-time monitoring if we have nanites in our bodies. And so that could result in a long-term shift to even more focus on conception and more focus on the Annunciation as the liturgical celebration of that for Christ. So those were some great questions, and that's it from us. What are your theories about these listeners' Christmas weird questions? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, posting it in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for doing the video and animation work on this episode. You can see their work by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. They do great stuff. So if you have a need for video or animation work, be sure to check them out. Also, while you're at YouTube, I am trying to grow my channel, and so I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification for any video I release, whether it's Mysterious World or another video. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week is New Year's, so for the holiday, we'll be looking at weird questions. We'll be considering issues like Captain America's time travel marriage, St. Patrick and snakes, whether the Holy Spirit took human form in the Bible, genetic mutations in evolution, and much more. Very good. Folks, be sure to follow Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where you should hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 238. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willis. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Howdy, folks. 
This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've continued to expand our video audience on YouTube with shows that provide extra content and context for our discussion of the mysteries, as well as more interviews with experts and bonus content that goes beyond our weekly episodes. We want to continue improving the show and keep reaching even more people while providing you with the fascinating mysteries that you enjoy every week. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you and ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. Every gift counts. Could you give $15 a month or even just $10 a month? Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas. And remember that your gifts are tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com give. That's sqpn.com give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season. Thank you.